Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Really glad to have you along for the ride today. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Washington County retired senior judge Tom Cole. He's the co-founder of Paid in Full Oregon. We're going to talk about that program that's developing right here in uh, Oregon. And we'll talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. She offers a reaction to New York Mayor de Blasio's new plan, uh, which includes health care for all and two weeks paid vacation for every employer with five employees or more. So we'll get into uh, that later in the program as well. Taking a look at some of the developing stories of the day, the president uh, visited McAllen, Texas today, as he's deciding whether to declare a national emergency to fund the U.S.-Mexico border wall. It's at the center of the ongoing government shutdown. The president uh, was joined by his senior advisors and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, acting White House Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney, and Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. On the eve of her trip to the southern border in Texas with President Trump, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Nielsen told Sean Hannity that it was offensive and disrespectful for top Democrats to accuse Republicans of exploiting illegal immigration for political gain. Speaking earlier on Wednesday, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez echoed Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's language, telling America's newsroom that this whole border security crisis, it really, I believe, is a manufactured crisis. Well, Nielsen, who met with congressional leaders on Wednesday in the Situation Room with the president and has played a central role in talks to end the partial federal government shutdown, Call that rhetoric disgraceful on Hannity. What is in store for the Justice Department with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein expected to resign after uh, rather soon after uh, President Trump's nominee William Barr is confirmed as the nation's next attorney general? Well, badly needed reforms, says legal analyst Greg Jarrett in an analysis. He writes that under the failed leadership of fired Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Rosenstein, the department has been operating more like the Department of Injustice in its handling of out-of-control and ever-expanding Russia probe led by special counsel Robert Mueller and overseen by Rosenstein. And that's only one example of his misconduct. Well, will the new appointment have any impact on that investigation? It seems doubtful, but we'll have to wait and see. Democratic Party mega donor Ed Buck faces new questions this week as Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department investigates the deaths of a man at his home. This is the second in less than two years. In addition, a third man has come forward and claimed that the well-connected Buck lured him uh, to his uh, apartment and injected him with crystal methamphetamine during a 
frightening encounter. Buck has not been arrested, and his attorney says he's cooperating with authorities. Both of the men found dead in his home were black. So is the man who accused him of injecting him with methamphetamines. Buck is 50, 64, rather, has donated tens of thousands of dollars to a slew of liberal causes and candidates over the years, including Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and a who's who of, of uh, top California politicians. Critics have wondered whether Buck's wealth and influence caused authorities to slow walk the investigation into the first death at his home. Now, by mentioning that affiliation, I am in no way suggesting that those high profile um, political figures have anything to do with his activity, just giving some context to who the man is and how uh, he wields influence in the country. Billionaire Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos announced Wednesday that he and his wife, Mackenzie, are divorcing. Typically, I wouldn't mention such a thing, except this is uh, the largest abortion, uh, abortion divorce settlement in U.S. history. After 25 years of marriage, and some observers believe the soon-to-be ex-Mrs. Bezos could become the world's richest woman. It isn't clear whether the Bezoses... I guess that's how you say it in the plural, have a prenuptial agreement, although that has been confirmed they do not, and any other contract affecting the financial terms of their divorce. However, without an agreement, Mackenzie Bezos would likely be entitled to an equal share of his personal fortune of $137.2 billion, according to Bloomberg. With approximately $69 billion, Mackenzie Bezos would easily surpass the world's current richest woman, uh, L'Oreal cosmetic heiress Francois something Myers, uh, who has an estimated net worth of $45.6 billion. Can you even imagine to have that much money at your uh, disposal? And you like to think, well, the good I could do. One would hope that that would be the case, but wow. First thing I'd do is I'd buy you a gift, Clark. I'd buy you something really nice. Okay, maybe not. On this date in the year 2000, America Online announced it's buying Time Warner for $162 billion. Well, the merger would prove disastrous and end in December of 2009. On this day in 1967, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, in his State of the Union address, asks Congress to impose a surcharge on both corporate and individual tax or income taxes to help pay for his Great Society programs, as well as the war in Vietnam. We'll see if something similar emerges in this current House with the Green Agenda uh, being considered. And on this day in 1776, Thomas Paine anonymously publishes his influential pamphlet we now know to be attributed to him, Common Sense, which argues for American independence from British rule. Now, we are no longer connected to Britain in that way, but perhaps a pamphlet on common sense is overdue in the 21st century. Problem is, I'm not sure who would write it. Or you might just argue it's already been written. Too few people are reading and studying it, however. Well, President Trump today visited the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. He argued a barrier made of steel would deter human trafficking and drugs on the border with uh, stalled negotiations with Democrats over funding the border project and ending the partial government shutdown. Where you have a good, strong barrier, you don't have problems, the president told reporters during that tour. During an earlier briefing with border agents at a patrol station in McAllen, President highlighted the prevalence of guns and drugs along the border. He spoke in front of the table of terms, uh, rather, a table of items border agents have seized, including a rifle, handguns, a plastic bag full of uh, cash, 
and black taped um, bricks of heroin and methamphetamine. If you had a barrier of any kind, a powerful barrier, whether it's steel or concrete, we would stop it cold, he said, of human trafficking. Back in Washington, Democrats today were blocked in the uh, Senate after trying to proceed with House-passed spending bills that would fund the government and end the partial government shutdown without new border wall money. Uh, But Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican majority leader, blocked that effort, saying it amounts to pointless show votes. The president famously promised during 2016, during the campaign, that Mexico would pay for that border wall. But on, well, today, the president argued that Mexico could still contribute to it indirectly, even though he's uh, demanding $5.7 billion in U.S. taxpayer money to pay for the wall. When I say Mexico is going to pay for the wall, the president said, I didn't say they're going to write me a check for $10 billion or $20 billion, uh, he said during the briefing. If Congress approves this trade bill... Uh, They'll pay for the wall many times over. When I say Mexico is going to pay for the wall, that's what I mean. Well, it's what he means now. It's not clear that's what he meant then because, well, there was no agreement between the United States and Mexico then. Well, before leaving the White House for Texas, the president insisted he's still willing to declare a national emergency if Congress doesn't approve funding for that barrier. We'll talk more about that, whether or not he has the authority and if there are limits on it that would prevent him from getting what he wants. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, that is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, in fact, in our very next segment, we're going to talk with Washington County retired senior judge Tom Cole. He's the co-founder of Paid in Full Oregon. We'll bring you up to date on how this ministry is developing in the Oregon State Prison System in cooperation with uh, Corbin University. A really exciting project. Anyway, we'll get into that a bit later. Well, when Donald Trump was looking for a catchy phrase during his 2016 presidential campaign to address the issue of immigrants entering the United States unlawfully, a line that would resonate with his supporters, he came up with the phrase, build the wall. Uh, The reference, of course, is that um, is what the president advertised would be a 30 foot tall, thousand mile long Mexico financed physical wall along our border with Mexico. Well, that's modified somewhat. The president has changed his argument that Mexico would pay directly for his wall by arguing instead that the five point seven billion down payment he wants on the twenty five billion to thirty billion dollar project would indirectly pay for itself in reduced government welfare, law enforcement expenses, and the new trade deal. Well, the idea of the wall would never um, uh, took hold during the first two years of his presidency when the Republicans controlled both the House and Congress, but now um, it's on front page. And, of course, the government shutdown has put it there. Well, the Constitution is... Um, The supreme law of the land. Everyone who works in government takes a public oath of fidelity to the Constitution. Now, I question whether or not most of them have actually read it or are familiar with it. But that means um, to its very words uh, and to the values that those words represent, these people commit to fidelity. All federal powers come from the Constitution and from no other source. The states form the federal government and limit its, its powers when they ratified the Constitution. These are all basic truisms of American government, yet we have veered so far from them that they uh, bear repeating. Now, back to the president's wall. President Trump has uh, no power to build a wall or a fence or a doghouse or a private property without an express or implied congressional authorization to do so. So says one Judge Andrew Napolitano, who says that the president cannot alone, declaring an emergency, build a wall on our southern border. 
Now, there are other scholars and judges and lawyers who dispute that claim and suggest that, yes, he can. There are a number of uh, legitimate questions about whether or not he has the authority to seize property under this kind of an emergency, the powers that are granted to the executive for situations like 9-11. Now, the president would argue that the uh, chaos on the southern border is equivalent to national security and would fall into that category. Um, So there are some questions about whether or not the declaration of an emergency, which the president seems to be closer to declaring, is in fact a legitimate power granted by the Constitution or statutory uh, extension. Well, during his primetime Oval Office address uh, Tuesday night, the president left out any reference to declaring a national emergency. He's now mentioned it several times since. He had thought perhaps the art of the deal would mean this would be resolved sooner rather than later. He instead, during those talks, focused on reaching a bipartisan deal with congressional Democrats to end the partial government shutdown. Well, during a White House meeting on Wednesday, the president asked House Speaker Nancy Pelosi whether she would agree on funding a physical barrier along the southern border if he opened the government. Pelosi said no. The president walked out. Republican congressional leaders told reporters. Well, Democrats contend the problems at the border do not constitute a crisis, and so there's a semantic argument back and forth. Now, depending on which point in history you want to drop down, you've had the Democrats declaring there's an absolute crisis on the border when it was in their interest to uh, make that point. And you've had uh, Republicans denying that it was the crisis uh, that would demand the kind of um, prescription the Democrats were prescribing. So, Uh, Again, you've heard it from all sides at one point or another. But here are four things to know about the process of the president declaring a national emergency over the border situation. Um, It's somewhat of a political question, but here's some things to consider. What did the president, uh, previous presidents, what have they done? Well, presidents have uh, taken emergency actions to use the government to tackle an emergency without Congress. But it wasn't until the 70s that Congress passed a law to say not so fast. So the uh, the power to declare an emergency has been exercised for quite some time. But in the 1970s, Congress uh, put the brakes on and said, well, yeah, you have the authority, but not so fast. President Abraham Lincoln took emergency actions without Congress during the Civil War. President Woodrow Wilson was the first president to formally proclaim a national emergency. It happened in 1917 during World War One, according to a. Uh, report by the Congressional Research Service. The goal was to limit the transfer of American ships to the possession of foreign individuals or entities. And Wilson used executive authority to establish the United States Chipping Board to oversee water transportation. In March of 1921, Congress terminated that board. President Franklin Roosevelt, he took executive uh, action, rather, deemed an emergency during the Great Depression and World War II. President George W. Bush notably declared a national emergency after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon. And in 2014, after the Russian invasion of Crimea in Ukraine, President Barack Obama signed an an executive order declaring a national emergency as a means to freeze U.S. assets of any individual who asserted government power in Ukraine without the approval of the Ukrainian government. So where does the authority come from for the president to exercise this uh, emergency power? Well, during the 70s, Congress became increasingly concerned about the power of the executive branch after the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal. So in 1973, November to be more exact, the Senate Special Committee on the Termination of the National Emergency, chaired by Senator Frank Church, a Democrat out of Idaho, asserted that emergency proclamations give force to 470 provisions of U.S. law. Rather, Well, the Senate report states these hundreds of statutes delegate to president 
the extraordinary powers ordinarily exercised by Congress, which affect the lives of American citizens in a host of all-encompassing manners. This vast range of powers taken together confer enough authority to rule the country without reference to normal constitutional processes. Under the powers delegated by these statutes, the president may seize property. So that may answer the question of whether or not he could seize property after the declaration of a national emergency, private property, organize and control the means of production, seize commodities, assign military forces abroad, institute martial law, seize and control all transportation and communication, regulate the operation of private enterprise, restrict travel, and in a plethora of particular ways, control the lives of all American citizens. So in 1976, Congress passed the National Emergencies Act. It was sponsored by Representative Peter Rodino, a Democrat out of New Jersey. The legislation drew bipartisan support and President Gerald Ford, a Republican, signed it into law. Well, the new law put a statutory framework in place that allowed the president to declare a national emergency with limitations. Mainly, Congress can terminate the emergency declaration if it has the votes to do so. Also, a president uh, must renew the declaration of an emergency after 180 days. In other words, the president could declare an emergency, but Congress would have the uh, the power, if they had the votes to do so, to retract what the president declared as an emergency. And if they fail to do so, he would have to renew that declaration of an emergency after 180 days. Now, while entirely legal, an emergency declaration is significant and can set a precedent, according to uh, the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, the, the term national emergency isn't defined in the National Emergencies Act. So every invocation of that authority by a president creates a precedent of sorts. In an interview, um, Malcolm explained, and I'm quoting now, the first thing the president would have to do is to declare a national emergency under the Emergencies Act. He would then have to tell Congress why this is an emergency and define the scope of the emergency. And then he would have to tell Congress what other statutory authority he is relying on to spend and appropriated but unobligated funds to build a wall. There are 130-odd statutes in the federal code that empower a president to do this kind of thing under appropriate circumstances, but it would certainly be challenged in court. So the question is, where do conservatives stand with this regard, who have always been very wary of uh, executive overreach? The other question I would uh, suggest is a part of this equation, where would the money come from? And that, of course, has been an impediment with regard to our national security on the southern border for many, many, in fact, too many years. So does the president have the authority? Yes. But how that's um, how that's undertaken is a pretty serious issue that is still to be resolved. And it would depend largely on how that declaration of a national emergency was framed. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Up next, we're going to talk with Washington County retired senior judge Tom Cole. He's the co-founder of Paid in Full Oregon. We'll find out how that, uh, that ministry to the Oregon State prison system is coming along. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us for these next couple of segments because with me in studio is Senior Judge Tom Cole. He's the founder and director of Paid in Full Oregon, along with Senior Pastor Rich Jones. Uh, I'm, I'm just delighted to have you with us, but I want to give you a full introduction so that listeners who aren't familiar with you or Paid in Full have a better appreciation of, of who you are and what we're talking about. Uh, Senior Judge Cole, uh, in 2006, lost, six rather, lost his daughter Megan to a brutal murder. 
Um, he wrote a book about the murder of Megan and his experience in drug court. The book opened the, uh, the doors for him to begin speaking in prisons here in Oregon and abroad all around the country and eventually led to the idea of placing a fully accredited college program in prison. He retired from full-time judging in January of 2016, currently is on assignment part-time as a senior judge for the state of Oregon. And you join us here today to talk about um, paid in full from your role as founder and director, and we're just delighted to have you back with us. Well, thank you, Georgine, for having me back once again. It's always a pleasure to be back here in studio with you and just to, you know, you're such a pro on this. Thank you very much. You make me feel so comfortable. Well, you're so welcome. Now, the last time that we had you in studio, uh, we were looking ahead toward your first really fundraising event here in the state of Oregon. Can you give us some perspective on uh, on how that event went in terms of um, telling the story and encouraging people in our community to get behind the work of Paid in Full. Yeah, so um, we ended up, uh, I, I was in North Carolina last spring and visiting my counterpart there. North Carolina had just implanted a four-year Bible college in one of its prisons uh, in Raleigh called Nash Prison. My counterpart there works for a guy named Joe Gibbs, who used to be uh, the head coach of the Washington Redskins. He won three Super Bowl titles with three different quarterbacks. He's now a NASCAR owner. So we went to Nash Prison, we looked at the seminary there, and then we came back uh, the next day uh, to Charlotte. And uh, I was just walking through, we were getting a tour of Joe Gibbs Racing, which is a 500,000 square foot building. Joe Gibbs has 700 employees there. And we ran into Joe Gibbs. And so... uh, Joe Gibbs knew I was from Oregon and said one of the things on his bucket list was that he wanted to golf at Bandon Dunes in Oregon. <laughs> I said, I just golfed there three weeks ago. I had just been down in, in that area, part of the state. And so we talked a little bit, and then he he agreed to come out to Oregon and uh, do, a, do a game plan for life and be the guest speaker. And while he was here, he was also going to speak at our fundraiser. This was the first major fundraising event that we had planned. And... Uh, Several weeks before he was supposed to be here, he called and and said that he could not come. His son was dying. He has CTE, mm-hmm. and he was on a feeding tube and, and just didn't feel comfortable leaving his son back in North Carolina. And so he said, I have somebody else in mind for you. Would you mind having Daryl Strawberry uh, be your keynote speaker? Yeah, how long oh. did you have to think about that? <laughs> <laughs> about a nanosecond. So, so Daryl Strawberry agreed to come out and speak at our fundraiser. On Friday, October 26th, of course, Daryl had a long history. He won four World Series titles, one with the New York Mets and three with the Yankees, and ended up in being involved with drugs and alcohol and actually ended up going to prison. He now has a really awesome ministry. He speaks around the country. At that point last year, he had spoken at over 250 events when he came to our place. So he agreed. He came, and uh, uh, we... Uh, set up our first fundraiser in, in Hillsboro there. So we had a little less than 200 people. I was able to speak and give uh, some introductory comments. And then Daryl came on and gave his story and gave a just a really passionate uh, 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 plea for, for help with paid in full Oregon. And then, then Rich Jones uh, uh, talked after that. So uh, we ended up raising about $120,000, uh, which is unheard of in the state of Oregon for a Absolutely. startup, for a startup nonprofit like yes. that. We had no history. And uh, so it was just amazing. Going back to the history a little bit, uh, you know, I went down to Angola and, and visited Angola, which used to be one of the bloodiest, most violent prisons in the country. 
that changed when the warden there asked the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to come in and implant a four-year seminary in that prison. And they did in 1995, and then in 1999 they had their first graduating class. Angola was so bad that in one year over 20 inmates were murdered and two guards, and that's how dangerous and bloody that, that place was. So I happened to see a documentary in a local church uh, about Angola, and God that put that on my heart to go down to Angola and visit Angola. And so that's how I ended up uh, going to Angola. Uh, the warden invited me down there. Uh, we were there for four days. My wife and I went down. And I went back several times after that. And one time I was getting ready to leave, and the warden, uh, we were in his office, and uh, the warden said, uh, Judge, bow your head and close your eyes. And so when the warden of a maximum security prison says, prison says bow your head and close your eyes, you do. <laughs> I did, and this was his prayer. Dear Lord, don't let this man rest until they have a Bible college in the Oregon Department of Corrections. Amen. And I said, Warden, <laughs> you do not know Oregon. You do not know how impossible that's going to be. And uh, But anyway, the seed was planted in my heart, and I came back, and I, I, the first meeting I had was with Colette Peters, who's the director of the Department of Corrections. Oregon is very blessed. We have one of the best departments of corrections in the country, and we have one of the best leaders in the country to lead our Department of Corrections. So Colette Peters said we would love to get involved with the idea of sending one of our people to Angola. So I organized a trip down to Angola for uh, a total of 12 uh, people, which, who were most of them were Oregon officials. And they were so impressed by what had happened there. I, I, don't, I don't know if our listeners fully appreciate the unique nature of this partnership, the Oregon uh, Department of Corrections, Corbin University, and these two men who have experienced firsthand the pain of of crimes committed that resulted in their daughters being murdered, establishing a ministry that that trains uh, these inmates in a, over a four year period. Yeah, yeah. It, it it only God could orchestrate yeah. something like this. Only God could come up with a powerful story like this because it was something. It would be something that nobody would ever choose choose to go through. Uh, God has taken this tragedy and turned it into a triumph. Uh, so so it it really. Um, the, the partnerships between the Department of Corrections and Corbin University and paid in full, there's three parties to that mm-hmm. partnership. And it's just amazing how God has worked all of this together. The Department of Corrections uh, has been so enthusiastic about this project. They actually gave uh, paid in full 2,700 square, foot face in, 2700 square feet in a space in one of the buildings at uh, the Oregon State Correctional Institution. So that's where... Our college classrooms are going to be. Uh, we hope to start them in, in September, and uh, because we're going to, we need to add two classrooms to that space. It's going to trigger the Salem City Code, and we're going to have to do a bunch of upgrades to the heating, mm-hmm. ventil- ventilation, and mechanical aspects of that building. So we're looking at. We don't know exactly what that cost is going to be, but it could be anywhere between four hundred to four hundred fifty thousand dollars just to remodel the space, and that's going to have to be done before we start classes in September of this year. So we're at January and you're looking at September. Yes, yes. And so we need to have, we've raised enough money now. We, we've raised over a couple hundred thousand dollars since last June. Last June is when we, when we really started. We need to have another another $250,000 in our account, two hundred and fifty dollars to two hundred and seventy five dollars uh, by the end of March. So 
That seems impossible, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know, when it seems impossible, then we know who orchestrates the outcome. Absolutely, wow. absolutely. God would get will get all the glory of this. There's no doubt in my mind. We're gonna we're gonna raise. God's gonna raise all the money that we need for this project to get us started. Uh, yeah. So so Corbin has actually started uh, developing the curriculum, and I can go over that when we get a chance. Yeah, we're gonna take a break here in just a moment, but. Um, I think it is important to mention the role that Corbin is going to be playing in all of this. I was struck by a, a quote from retired warden uh, Burl Kane, who's from Angola Prison in Louisiana. He says, the greatest enemy of a prison inmate is lack of hope. And one of the things that I think this program has the capacity to do is to transform these men in um, in prison uh, not just um, provide them with an education, but to, to really transform their lives. Is that what you witnessed in Angola? Absolutely. Th- those men there in Angola, their hearts were transformed. You become transformed from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's not outside pressures that, that are put on these men to change, but it's what happens when Jesus Christ enters their heart and actually changes their heart, and that's what I saw in Angola. So from one of the bloodiest, most violent maximum security prisons to one of the safest, where my wife was with me, wherever we went down there, we never heard a cuss word the entire four days that we were on, on, on campus there at Angola Prison. That's a, a remarkable thing. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Senior Judge Tom Cole. He's the co-founder, along with uh, Rich Jones, uh, founder and director, I should say, of Paid in Full Oregon. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and continuing my conversation with Senior Judge Tom Cole, founder and uh, director, along with uh, Senior Pastor Rich Jones of Paid in Full Oregon. Now, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about Corbin University, and they're playing a strategic role in this uh, partnership. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, so Corbin... Um we had no idea who, which university was going to get involved. We knew that we needed, we wanted to have a faith-based university to implant a college degree program. So I had met with a couple of local presidents, and Sheldon Nord, the president of Corbin University, and I got along great. We had several meetings, and uh, finally, uh, Dr. Nord felt like this is something that that Corbin wanted to get involved in because I don't know if you know where they're located. Yes, they're in Salem. They sit they sit across the street from one of three prisons in Salem. They sit across the street from Santiam, uh, Oregon State Penitentiary is in Salem, and then where we are going to have our college uh, uh, program is Oregon State Correctional Institution (OSCI). So those are the three prisons that are really OSCI is the furthest one away, and it's about three miles as a crow flies. So Sheldon was talking earlier, and he spoke at our foundation dinner, and he says, you know, I've been wondering why Corbin is where it is. You know, what is, what is one of our goals? What, is, what should one of our goals be? And it, and, it, and it just sort of came to me this year, he said, in 2018, my gosh, we're involved with paid in full, and we're sitting right across the street from three prisons. This is where Corbin Corbin should be. We we are looking forward to setting up in a Corbin extension in OSCI. And it was just amazing. Corbin, you know, Sheldon Nord gave a great little five minute talk there at our fundraiser and he was so enthusiastic and so many people said, Wow, you know, Corbin is committed. So so that's how they're committed. They've actually started to prepare uh, a curriculum. Which is no small thing. Yes, yes. And so I can give you an example of the first Please. first year curriculum. Uh, the men there are going to be having uh, the the orientation seminar. Then they will be taking college writing one. They'll have Bible study methods. 
and Introduction to the Liberal Arts and Chapel. And that's in the first term. In the second term, they're going to have Contemporary Math, General Psychology, College Writing 2, and Survey of Bible Literature 1. And then in the third uh, third quarter of that year, they're going to have Fundamentals of Speech, American History Survey 1, Faith and Literary Imagination, Survey Bible Literature 2. And so they've got all four years mapped out as to what the men are going to be studying. And ultimately, the qualifications for the men to come into the be eligible for the, the college and prison, they'll have to have three main qualifications. One is uh, they need at least eight years left on their sentence at the time they apply. And the reason we're doing that is because we want them to give back. We want them to go out and, and send them out as missionaries into the rest of the prison system and to be mentors and counselors and chaplains' assistants to the other inmates in the Oregon State Prison. So this is how the prison system is going to change from the inside out. These men are going to be they're going to be able to be articulate and tell the gospel to the men, the other men that are in prison. The next criteria is they need to have a GED or high school degree, and the third criteria is they need to have at least one year, a one year uh, clean disciplinary record. Mm-hmm. There are no other qualifications. Uh, they they can be Christians, they can be Catholics, they can be agnostics, atheists, uh, Muslims, uh, Wicca. Um, there, there is no prohibition on anybody applying. We can't do that. And so it is open to all the men in prison that have those, at least those three, three criteria. Some people have asked, are you doing it with the women? And, and that's a great question to ask. We don't have enough women in the Oregon prison system to start a program like this. The Thankfully, av- there aren't enough. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, but but the average length of a woman in prison of the time in time in prison is three and a half years. So they wouldn't even be able to complete mm-hmm. a four year degree program. So we're not looking at that at this point. It doesn't mean sometime down the road that we might not that we might have something available for women at at uh, Coffee Creek and Wilsonville. Well, this is such an impressive program. I, I love the element of it where. Um, those who uh, finish the course provide peer and mentor services to other inmates. They are they become influencers, so they have an opportunity to do that where they're where they are at that time. But then once they're released, assuming that day will come, and in some cases perhaps it won't, they have the opportunity to be an influence on the outside as well. Yes, it, it is a fact that ninety five percent of the people sent to prison are going to be released back into our communities. How do we want them to come back in our communities? Do we want them to come back with a hardened heart or in a 45 strap to their belt buckle? Or do we want them to come back with transformed hearts and a college degree in their hand or even a Bible in their hand? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a real easy question to answer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about um, the funding. you, You and I had a conversation before the program started with some of the remarkable ways that God is providing the resource for this ministry to move forward. Can you share some of those stories with our listeners? Oh, the stories are amazing. They bring tears to my eyes. Uh, I first met with a a gatekeeper for a wealthy individual in in, uh, another county, and we spent about an hour and a half together. This was in June of last year. And my wife and I were having dinner downtown about two weeks later, and I got this email from uh, an assistant who works for this wealthy man. And the email said, good evening, Judge Cole. It had an exclamation point. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that you will be receiving a check for $20,000. That was our first gift to our program. And my, I started crying at the time. I couldn't believe that somebody would give that kind of money to, you know, yes. to this, this project. I mean, I, the, it's, it, it's, it's endearing to my heart, but, you know, so it was really cool. So anyway, 
Now I speak around the area. I speak in churches, special events. I'll even speak at a backyard barbecue. I've never said no to anybody asking me to come and speak. I was at a church earlier last year. Last year. After I spoke, this lady came up to me. She was an elderly lady, uh, and she pulled out her wallet, and she reached in her wallet and grabbed all the money that was inside her wallet and gave it to me. And she says, this is all I have. Will you please take this? And it was $8. Mm. It was just really just so heartwarming to see a widow, she was a widow, give me $8. At our fundraiser, I had uh, a young girl came up to me. Her dad had brought her to the fundraiser. It was it, it, she was the only only young person there. She came up to me and gave me four dollars, and so uh, I I had her name. And so afterwards, I sent thank you cards to all the people that were there at the fundraiser who had given given uh, gifts. And I sent her specifically uh, an individual thank you card, thanking her for the money she gave. Her dad called me that day and could not believe. He said that was the happiest I've ever seen my daughter when oh. she got a thank you card. From you acknowledging that small gift that she made, you know, to paid in full Oregon. And so these are the type of stories that we're seeing. Two weeks after I spoke at, or we had our fundraiser, I was the keynote speaker at the Clark County Prayer Breakfast. There were about 500 people there. About a week after that, I got an email from an individual who was there. And it said, Judge Cole, uh, I am, I, I really am, am intrigued by your project. I want to get to know more about it. Uh, in the meantime, though, I just wanted you to know I'm going to send a check for ten thousand uh, dollars to to you. And we, oh, I would by like, the way. yes, I would like to get together with you at a later date with you and your wife. With he wanted me to meet, have lunch with he and his wife, and so we did that last Friday. But these are the type of stories. You know, some guy gave us a check for twenty five thousand dollars, had no idea who he was. Mm-hmm. Other people, twenty twenty five dollars. I mean, we have a a web page uh, paid in full. Oregon.org, and there's a donate button at that page. So if you go there, you can. Uh, we have a giving platform there, and and we can take monthly donations there of any amount or, or any amount that, that anybody wants to give. So we've we were building up a nice list there, and and uh, uh, it's just been amazing to see how God has been providing for paid in full. I know this is God's vision. This is not my vision. Mm-hmm. All I do is I wake up every morning and I ask God, show me the steps you wanted me to take today. And he shows me those steps. And uh, it's just amazing. It's his vision. And I know he's going to make provision for it. Well, I think about the warden who prayed uh, with you, over you, and asked that you wouldn't rest until the thing that you're doing was accomplished. And how God orchestrated events and affairs and um, and now paid in full Oregon is in full steam. And by next fall, we're going to see this project come to fruition. But it doesn't uh, just happen. It requires folks like those you described at fundraising events and at church services who just say, you know what? God has touched my heart. I want to uh, help make this possible. And as you mentioned, paidinfulloregon.org is a website. You can learn more about it. You can also give there. And I would also encourage all of us to be prayerful about all of the details, the things that need to fall into place uh, before this, the doors can be opened to this um, this ministry on, on site. And I thank you so much for your commitment in serving and making yourself available um, to just get the message to where it needs to be. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Again, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Georgie. We'll get an update from you in a couple okay. months. All right. Again, paid in full Oregon, and be sure to put Oregon. I made the mistake of just paid in full. You'll get other things, but paidinfulloregon.org uh, for more information. Judge Cole, thank you so much. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Stay with us. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program, James Blind producing. Later this hour, we'll talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation with a reaction to New York Mayor de Blasio's new plan. It's a uh, Provides health health care rather for all two weeks of vacation, paid vacation for all, at least if you work for an employer with five or more employees. We'll talk more about that when she joins us later this hour. Well, the current federal government shutdown, like all previous ones in the last century, was caused by an obscure law called the Anti-Deficiency Act. The law prohibits federal agencies from spending money that Congress hasn't specifically appropriated, and it exists to prevent the president or any agency heads from writing hot checks. Well, the law was codified in 1905. It's been around for a while, but provisions of it date almost to the nation's founding. It uh, developed from the long-running struggle between the executive branch and Congress over control of federal spending. Some things never change. Well, the Constitution restricts the ability to allocate funds to Congress, but it leaves the president in charge of the various federal agencies and departments. It didn't take long for administrations to realize that they could leverage this control to, in effect, extort Congress into spending money. Those who disperse the money are like a saucy boy who knows his grandfather will gratify him and over uh, and overturns the sum allowed him at pleasure. That's a quote from Virginia Congressman John Randolph, a Democrat Republican Party, 1806. Yeah, there was the Democrat Republican Party. Hmm. In the 19th century, presidents from all parties made it a common practice to spend money that hadn't yet been authorized by Congress, much to the irritation of lawmakers in the time. According to Charles Typher, who's a law professor at the University of Baltimore, an agency official would run up bills well beyond what he was appropriated and then dare Congress to let the agency shut down, he said. If you were to look over the funding bills that were enacted in the late 1800s, for example, you would see many with the title Deficiency Acts, bills meant to deal with the other type of bills. Well, in some cases, the spending bills were labeled as urgent deficiencies, indicating that Congress felt really pressured to make the appropriations. Postmaster General David McKendry Key told uh, Congress in 1879 that he needed an additional 34 percent um, on top of the money that they'd already allocated. Well, when Congress uh, ratified his uh, actions after the fact, which it ultimately did, it irritated members of Congress. Nevertheless, they responded in 1870 by prohibiting moving federal funds from one account to another and barring agencies from spending more than they had been allocated. Well, Congress went a step further in 1884. They prohibited federal workers from appearing at their job, even if they were willing to work for free. This was done on the apparent grounds that allowing them to work legally obliged the government to pay them. And this amounted to unauthorized spending. This is according to the former Treasury Department lawyer now in private practice, Raymond Natter. Well, this rule and others limiting executive branch spending were codified in the Anti-Deficiency Act of 1905. An officer or employee of the United States government or of the District of Columbia government may not accept voluntary services for either government or employee Uh, employ personal services exceeding that authorized by law, except for emergencies involving the safety of human life or the protection of property, it said. That's where we get the idea that 
uh, non-essentials are um, are permitted or, or not allowed rather to work. Well, successive presidential administrations have broadened this exception, which currently covers about 450,000 of the estimated 800,000 federal employees who are not being paid. Well, despite its significance in government shutdown prosecutions for an anti-deficiency act are so far rare. Um, in fact, it's difficult to think of a single one. You neither need nor want to imprison administration officials for budgetary practices, although I might consider it. Uh, you just want to warn them and that suffices. Well, one attempt to pursue a criminal complaint not only failed, but ended up creating a new loophole in that law. Professor Lawrence Tribe agreed in 1987 to draft a legal memo for the special prosecutor looking into the Iran-Contra matter during the Reagan administration. Tribe did this for free prompting three consecutive groups active at the time, Citizens for Reagan, the Conservative Campaign Fund, and the National Defense Council Foundation, to file charges with the Justice Department alleging that he was violating the Anti-Deficiency Act. Well, the department declined to prosecute on the grounds that the act only applied in cases where the federal work had a specified minimum salary. That wasn't the case for contributing to a legal memo, so Tribe was permitted to do it for free, of his own volition. Well, according to a Senate Appropriations Committee spokesman, such cases are very rare. Uh, the bottom line is how Lincoln and an ambitious postmaster general gave us uh, today's shutdown can be traced back to that very act, as, uh, as mentioned, the Anti-Deficiency Act. And that's why the government is shut down today and why there's a debate going on, well, we hope, tomorrow. Well, President Trump uh, today announced that he's canceling his trip later this month to the uh, annual World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, citing democratic intransigence on uh, border security aimed to, at the uh, partial government shutdown. Well, because of the Democrats intransigent on border security and the great importance of safety for our nation, I am respectfully canceling my very important trip to Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. He tweeted, my warmest regards and apologies to the WEF. Well, the president attended the world meeting of global elites last year, the first time for an American president since 2000. He was expected to attend in January the 25th through the 20, uh, rather the 22nd through the 25th session again this year, likely offering a repeat of the America first message he took to Switzerland last year, where he declared America open for business while warming uh, he wanted to make uh, trade with other nations fair and reciprocal. Well, in Washington, Republicans and Democrats are deadlocked over funding uh, to keep the government open as the par- partial government shutdown continues into its third week. Meanwhile, uh, Northern California utility Pacific Gas and Electric may be ordered to inspect its electric grid and turn off power during windy conditions to prevent wildfires this year, a federal judge proposed today. Uh, U.S. District Judge William Alsup said that uh, in his court order that the recommendations to cut power during certain wind conditions, regardless of the inconvenience to customers, loss or loss of profit, would be to prevent devastation like the kind that we saw through the region last year. This will likely mean having to uh, interrupt service during high wind events and possibly at other times. Uh, But the inconvenience, uh, irritating as it may be, will pale by comparison to the death and devastation that otherwise might result from a PG&E inflicted wildfire, he wrote. Fire season in California runs from June the 21st to the first first, um, region-wide rainstorm in November or December. So this would be a very long period of time. Alsup, the judge, gave PG&E until the 23rd of this month to respond to his proposal, which comes 
after he began uh, demanding answers from the utility on uh, any role that it might have played in the campfire. That blaze started on the 8th of November, killed at least 86 people, destroyed 14,000 homes, and leveled Paradise, a city of about 27,000 residents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue taking a look uh, through the news. And when we uh, come back later in the program, we'll talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements. We'll give her an opportunity to respond to the New York Mayor de Blasio's new plan that includes health care for all and two weeks paid vacation for all employees who work for employers with five employees or more. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a nonprofit group that represents journalists in legal matters has filed a motion asking a federal appeals court to bring to light filings in a mystery grand jury subpoena case that's thought to be tied to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian election interference. In the 33-page filing in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia, um, at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press argues that the public's right to access outweighs both the federal government and the parties involved um, have said is cause to keep the filings and proceedings sealed. So we don't really know if it is or isn't, but that's the presumption. The public has a First Amendment and common law right to review documents filed in appellate courts and to know what arguments are being made to those courts. Uh, legal director of the organization in a statement uh, said on Wednesday, the nonprofit organization asked that the court proceedings and the records be released, even if it means in redacted form. Well, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a lower court ordered uh, that found the company known as the corporation owned by Country A must comply with a federal grand jury subpoena or be held in contempt and pay $50,000 a, a day in fines. The scant details were only revealed once the D.C. Circuit released their ruling in early December. Well, the fight against the subpoena then reached the U.S. Supreme Court and Chief Justice John Roberts in late December issued a temporary administrative stay of the contempt fines. Well, Tuesday morning, the company even signaled it was ready to ask the court to take up the case right away based on the merits. But in the two-sentence order later on Tuesday, the Supreme Court said Roberts' order was vacated and the high court would not hear the case. Uh, This means that if the company on the uh, um, professional website uh, decides uh, that they are not going to comply, this may in fact have something to do with the Mueller case. Uh, Numerous entities and individuals in connection with Mueller's investigation are apparently linked to this mystery. Well, the uh, the Boone lists um, Republican National Committee uh, regarding public records litigation as among past clients And in this case, they're trying to determine if there is perhaps some unknown element to the Mueller investigation that, well, they want to know more about. Meanwhile, Michael Cohen, President Trump's one-time personal attorney and presumably close friend, announced that he will testify, rather, before the House Oversight and Reform Committee on the 7th of February, almost exactly one month before he has to report to prison to begin serving time for campaign finance violations, tax evasion, and lying to Congress about the president's past business dealings in Russia. In a statement, Cohen said he accepted the invitation to appear before the Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings um, the, in furtherance of his commitment to cooperate and provide the American people with answers and perhaps to see a little less time in prison. I look forward to having the privilege of being afforded a platform with which to give a full and credible account of the events which have transpired, Cohen 
added. Now, his credibility has been called into question. So whether or not a full and credible account can be expected, many uh, still ponder. Well, Cummings said the uh, committee was in the process of consulting with special counsel Robert Mueller's office to ensure that Cohen's scheduled testimony would not interfere with the ongoing investigation into interactions between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. Adam Schiff, who's a Democrat out of California, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, <clears throat> excuse me, said he welcomed Cohen's agreement to testify, but added it would be necessary for Mr. Cohen to answer questions pertaining to the Russia investigation. And we hope to schedule a closed session before our committee in the near future. Well, the federal judge sentenced Cohen to three years in prison last month following a dramatic hearing at which he said he felt it was his duty to cover up Trump's dirty deeds. That's in quotes. Cohen must report to prison sometime before the 6th of March. In August, he pled guilty to breaking campaign finance laws by helping orchestrate payments to silence former uh, model, excuse me, Karen McDougal, an adult film uh, actress. I hate referring to it as an adult film actress. A a different title needs to be given to it. There's nothing adult about it. But anyway, I suppose the deprivation legally of young people is enough to garner the name, but I think you get my point. Anyway, uh, they said uh, she had claimed that she had a relationship with the president that um, she was later paid uh, to avoid speaking of. Well, Cohen's lawyer had requested a lighter sentence, citing the client's cooperation with the special counsel and prosecutors looking into campaign finance violations. But federal prosecutors recommended a substantial term of imprisonment for Cohen, saying he repeatedly used his power and influence to Um, deceptive ends and claiming that his cooperation with Mueller was overstated. Students at Cumberland County High School, they're fighting against what they say is the local Pennsylvania school district's unconditional ban on distributing Bibles on campus. Well, the students allege that David Harris, the high school's principal, told members of the Christian in, Christians in Action Student Club that they were not allowed to pass out Bibles to their peers, their friends, during lunchtime, and that if they wanted to pass out Bibles after the school day, they would have to get approval from the school administration. Well, the students then asked the um, uh, Jeremy Samick, Independent uh, Law Center senior counsel, to help them challenge the uh, area school district's Bible ban and appeal the administration's lift, uh, lift of it. Um, For some reason, they believe that in order to avoid an Establishment Clause violation, they mistakenly believe they need to treat religion like it's toxic and they need to eliminate it from public school wherever they find it, Uh, the attorney said, according to Penn Live. Uh, When you start uh, doing that, you move from protecting the Establishment Clause to violating the free speech rights of students. This is peer-to-peer activity. Well, the school district had until Monday to respond to the letter from the law center requesting that the administration allow the students to distribute the Bibles on campus. The school district said Friday that it was aware of the letter and would investigate the students' claims. Well, MASD uh, respects the rights of students to express themselves and distribute materials. They also recognize that exercise of that right must be limited by the district's responsibility to main and maintain an orderly school environment and to protect the rights of all members of the school community, the school district uh, said to uh, speaking to local media. Accordingly, students uh, do have the right to of distribution of non-school materials prior to the start of the school day and after the end of the school day if Uh, They develop a plan for time, place, and manner of distribution that is reviewed and approved by the administration. We plan to investigate the claims set forth in this letter and work with the students in accordance with the law and our local policy, the district stated. Well, the school board is scheduled to um, 
uh, meet. Uh, the challenge to the district's Bible ban is only the latest dispute between students and local school administrators over Christian scripture. Uh, Harris prohibited students from putting up flyers advertising their club in November because the flyers contained a Bible verse or verses, according to Samick, the attorney. Harris uh, reportedly told students that they would be allowed to post the flyer if they removed the verses. Students uh, researched this and went back to the principal and said, we think you are wrong. This is our freedom of speech. Well, the school administration relented on the flyers once the law center argued against their prohibition pointing out that U.S. Supreme Court case president shows that students maintain their First Amendment rights on campus so long as they don't distribute materials considered obscene or that incite violence. The Bible is not one of them, the attorney pointed out. Um, Well, we'll see what happens as the challenge uh, continues. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, the conservative video nonprofit PragerU filed a new lawsuit against Google and YouTube in Santa Clara, California, Superior Court to bring state charges against Google and YouTube in addition to the federal case currently before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Both Prager U or Prager University and Google are based in California. YouTube was built on the backs of users like Prager U who were promised... Um, Give us your videos because we are a public forum, a place where the public is invited to engage in freedom of expression and where everyone is treated equally. PragerU attorney Peter Opsler declared in a statement, we expect that to be the truth. Well, Opsler noted that Prager University originally filed a lawsuit with two federal claims and five state claims under California law. The Ninth Circuit dismissed the state claims, the straight law claims without prejudice, encouraging the nonprofit to bring them up in state law. Today, we've come full circle by filing a state law action, as the judge requested we do in state court to litigate those issues there. Well, this makes the Prager University lawsuit against Google and YouTube a two-track litigation. In the California case, Prager University brought four separate claims against Google and YouTube that the companies violate the free speech protections of Article 1, Section 2 of the California Constitution, that they violated the UNRWA uh, Civil Rights Act by engaging in political and viewpoint discrimination against uh, PragerU, uh, that they violated the state's business code through unfair competition, and that they breached the implied terms of their contract. YouTube has placed at least 80 Prager University videos off limits to users in restricted mode, and it has uh, pulled ads from at least 43 videos demonizing them. The video nonprofit has found similar videos on similar topics which have not been restricted or demonized. In um, some cases, restricted PragerU video content has been reposted by other accounts, and the resulting videos have not been restricted. So the case will move forward. Uh, in state court. As of this date, the filing of this lawsuit, Google, YouTube have provided no rational or reasonable law, uh, lawful basis to restrict Prager University's content while allowing other users or YouTube's own content on the same topics to go unrestricted, including content that contains graphic violence, hate speech, profanity, and otherwise violates defendants' regulations, the lawsuit alleges. And of course, none of that is contained in Prager University. Videos. The clear motivation, they argue, is political animus against conservative speakers. The censorship motivated by this bias harms users and gives Google an unfair advantage in business. We'll follow the case and let you know what happens. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time. Up next, we'll hear from Rachel Gresler, research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. She's going to react to New York Mayor de Blasio's new plan providing health care for all. And two weeks paid vacation for all. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio on Tuesday announced plans to launch the largest, most comprehensive plan in the nation to guarantee health care coverage for all of cities, uh, the city's residents, including those in the country illegally. Well, de Blasio said in a statement at the time, health care is a right, not a privilege reserved for those who can't afford it. While the federal government works to put health care for millions of Americans, New York City is leading the way by guaranteeing that every New Yorker has access to quality, comprehensive access to care, regardless of immigration status or their ability to pay. Well, the liberal mayor said the plan will serve the 600,000 New Yorkers who don't have insurance by strengthening the uh, the city's public health insurance option, Metro Plus. And it will also guarantee health care access to those ineligible for insurance, including illegal immigrants who live in New York. Well, that program, NYC Care, all uh, uh, will launch rather this summer and uh, will cost at least emphasis on at least 100 million dollars annually at full scale according to the city well here to talk with us about this uh, plan this announcement uh, is rachel gresler she's a research fellow in economics budget and entitlements at the heritage foundation thank you so much for joining us today Thank you for having me. First of all, let me ask you how innovative and new uh, Mayor de Blasio's uh, health care announcement actually is. Um, is this just a restatement of what's already the, the case in New York, or is this something dramatically different that he's proposing? We don't know a whole lot of the details yet, but it just seems to be yet another push to try to get more people enrolled under a government-run health care plan. This is something that was already tried, of course, with Obamacare, and yet you see that certain people just choose not to sign up, even those who could receive a 100% subsidy. And so this is yet another attempt to go after those. Um, the mayor has said that they will invest $100 million, but if you look at the size of that across anywhere from 300,000 to 600,000 residents that they're claiming are uninsured, that can't provide a very big benefit. That's about $300 per person and certainly nowhere close to what a real health insurance plan would cost. Now, what he's proposing is that those who otherwise would not have health insurance, which is not what they're going to get under his plan, from what I understand, uh, they tend to go to the emergency room and he wants to connect them with a primary care physician uh, rather than the expense of the emergency room. Um, is that a fair explanation of what we think he is is trying to do is shift uh, the burden away from the emergency room to uh, primary care providers? That's what it sounds like. You know, the city already has a network of public hospitals and clinics, and it sounds like he's trying to get individuals enrolled under this city-run program so that they can pick which doctor they will go to see and set them up with things like an annual routine visit um, as opposed to just going to the ER for certain services. Of course, this is not going to prevent them from going to the ER for those things, but it might get them an additional you know, annual checkup per year or something along those lines. Well, the big elephant in the room is uh, who's going to pay for this. And uh, the, the cost, as we mentioned, he uh, pledged to put $100 million toward the new initiative, which is, you know, a starting point. But uh, what kind of impact is this going to have on um, businesses in the city of New York if this additional burden is now uh, going to be theirs because of guaranteed health care and the uh, the right to health insurance and health care that the mayor has now announced? Yes, $100 million wouldn't amount to a whole lot of a burden for businesses, but if you look at what an actual, you know, valuable insurance program would cost, you're talking about, you know, 
a multiple of 100 of that. Um, and so that's when you would start to have a real impact from the taxes. Something that Mayor de Blasio also announced yesterday is a paid um, a paid vacation mandate. He would like the council to require that all businesses that um, have more than five workers would have to provide all those workers with two weeks of paid vacation per year. Now, that's something that would actually be extremely costly for businesses, at least those who don't already provide the paid vacation. And unfortunately, those are the businesses that are already struggling to make ends meet and aren't able to offer this paid vacation. And that's who he's proposing to have to pay these costs, you know, upwards of $1,200 per year per worker at a minimum to provide that paid leave. So this is another coercive government mandate that we're, we're talking about here. And some are speculating that de Blasio is thinking seriously about um, throwing his hat in the ring for the 2020 presidential uh, nomination for the Democrat Party. And while this uh, this plan is not likely to succeed and certainly would present a significant burden to residents there, it does give him the opportunity to say that in the state that I was the mayor in or in the city I was the mayor uh, of, um, these are declarations that I made. Whether or not it succeeds is another thing. Um, how likely is this to, uh, according to his value system, to succeed uh, in not only funding health care for those who would otherwise not be insured, but uh, not undermining the economic um, vitality of the city? I think this is just going to end up being a mistake and a failure at that. I don't believe that very many people will gain new access to insurance coverage or to the health care that they would like to receive, um, and yet it's going to drive up costs. You're going to have an inefficient, ineffective government program. And on the paid leave side of things, it might sound like a great benefit to workers, and who wouldn't like to have you know two weeks off to have vacation every year? But if it comes down to the bottom line and what it actually costs, um, many of these businesses have known what it's like to not be able to meet a payroll. Um, And if you're tacking on this huge tax to them, they're going to have to cut hours, they're going to have to cut salaries, or they're going to have to cut jobs. And so for the workers that de Blasio may be thinking he's giving them this great benefit, he's instead taking away incomes and salaries. And that's not something that New York workers want. It's already tough enough, especially for small businesses to get by and the Big Apple. It's only going to make it harder with these new government programs and mandates. I was listening to New Yorkers earlier today talk about how many empty storefronts there are in the city, uh, given the the burdens that that they already have been called upon to bear. And this would just uh, simply add to this. Uh, You're quoted as saying that government should promote policies that encourage job creation, wage growth and innovation. And Mayor de Blasio's plan taxes workers and creates costs that most small businesses won't be able to absorb. Coercive government mandates like this force employers to lay off workers, cut back on hours, reduce pay and other benefits, and will force many to relocate outside the city of New York to places where their business can survive. We're already starting to see that, and this certainly uh, threatens to um, contribute to that mass exodus. Yes, it's true. It's becoming a place where only the big businesses can survive and pushing out all the smaller ones and not giving them the opportunity to succeed. Now, Gavin Newsom, he made a similar announcement yesterday or or earlier this week on the first day uh, after he was sworn in as the governor of the state of California. Your thoughts on um, what he is proposing there on an already struggling state? Yes, he's proposed, you know, an even more expanded paid leave policy there. The state already has 
a relatively modest um, state-based paid leave program, and he would like to expand that to provide 16 weeks of paid leave, something beyond even what um, most of the more generous private employer policies provide. This would be extremely costly. Their program as it is today is relatively modest and also underutilized, but if that expands to 16 weeks, then all those employers that are currently providing 12 will have no incentive to provide that anymore. Instead, they'll shift all those costs onto state taxpayers so that the government, instead of the employer themselves, can pay for that paid leave. And it's also going to encourage more people to take leave that they may not even need to take. So I think this would be extremely costly um, and a mistake because one-size-fits-all government paid leave programs don't serve workers best. The best solution for them is to work with their employer on a needs-based basis. Employers can respond immediately and let the person leave from work that hour when they find out that they have a need, whereas a state-based program or even a federal program, you would have to apply to that weeks in advance and then you'd sit waiting, wondering whether or not you're actually going to be approved. That's not going to meet workers' needs. Well, it may not serve the people of the uh, of the city of New York or, for that matter, the state of California, but it may certainly serve uh, Mr. de Blasio well if he decides to enter the fray in 2020. So we'll see who benefits <laughs> from all of this. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it very much. Rachel Gresler is a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back. To the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, we are going to return to our tradition on Friday of lightening things up. We'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. But in addition to that, we want to spay. spay. Boy, that doesn't sound right. We want to pay. There will be no spaying or neutering on the program. We want to pay a special tribute to James Blend, who is celebrating this week. It was in January of 1940. I don't know. What was it? 1994. What was it? 1904. <laughs> Sorry. What year was it? 2004. 2004. <laughs> He's flashing all these numbers. 2004, when he began as the producer of The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, many have said uh, that that, uh, that really made the man. I've heard it said that that made the man. Okay, I was the one who said it, but still it has some validity. I've said it more than once, so it must be true. Anyway, we're going to spend some time uh, giving tribute to um, James Blend for his 15 years of service and give you an, a glimpse into his life here at the station as well. So we're looking forward to that, but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news. Now, maybe to ease us uh, into that, I noted that Janine Puhak had a, a column in which she asked the question, was it the candy? M&M's, Skittles, and Baby Ruth's failed to bridge the divide between the president and the Democrats. Now, we all heard that the meeting between the president and uh, Democrats over the shutdown of the government and the wall uh, began with the president making candy available. Now, if I had been in the room, uh, I just would have folded If they had had Butterfingers, that just would have been it. Which, by the way, brings me to a subject that is of great concern. I'm seeing commercials with Reese's Pieces embedded in Reese's peanut butter cups. It's just unnecessary. It's unnecessary. It shouldn't be done. It's redundant. There, I've said it. Anyway, this high-powered meeting began with the president presenting candy to these uh, lawmakers. This high-powered meeting began on a sweet note 
It quickly turned sour, which um, maybe tells us he should have brought different candy, leaving one to wonder if the chaos may have begun with the candy. Uh, representatives from Wrigley Company, Nestle, Mars Inc., and for. Ferrer, Ferrio, or something like that, the parent company of Skittles, Butterfinger, M&M's, and Baby Ruth, respectively, haven't responded to questions about um, their products being served at an all-important meeting and whether they feel any partial responsibility for its abrupt conclusion, but one can draw one's own conclusions. Well, on Wednesday, the president reportedly distributed stacks of candy, including M&M's, Skittles, Butterfingers, Baby Ruth bars during the meeting with congressional leaders regarding the partial government shutdown and border wall funding. The president uh, is said to have treated government leaders, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, to a slew of sweet treats, according to the New York Post. Well, despite the saccharine gesture, Chuck Schumer told reporters after the brief session that the president just got up and walked out. He asked the speaker, will you agree to my wall? She said no. Uh, And he just got up and walked out. Well, there was more to that question if we... uh, Well, I won't go into all of it, but anyway, that's essentially the Reader's Digest version. The president, in a tweet called the meeting a total waste of time, appeared to confirm that he left after Pelosi's answer to a lengthier question. I asked what is going to happen in 30 days if I quickly open things up. Are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or steel barrier? Nancy said no. I said bye-bye. Nothing else works, the president later tweeted. And again, Wrigley uh, Company, Nestle, Mars, Inc., and... Ferio, none of them uh, responded to or took responsibility for the failure of that meeting to resolve the important issues. Uh, All candy quips aside, it's previously been reported that the president indeed has a particular penchant for sweet and salty uh, foods that includes candy. So there you have it. Well, this was out of um, the Babylon Bee, and I thought it was hilarious given The back and forth in recent days over fact checking, we know before the president spoke earlier this week that the networks actually debated on whether or not they should have the uh, they should cover the president's speech at all, which was really very short. It was followed by a rebuttal by the dream team on the Dem side. Um, But there was uh, a lot of back and forth. And then the conclusion was that we have got to fact check everything about what the president has to say. Now, extending that same courtesy to the rebuttal, I'm not sure was uh, quite as enthusiastic. But nonetheless, as the president began, uh, according to the Babylon Bee, which is sort of tongue in cheek, as the president began addressing the nation Tuesday evening, he said good evening to the camera, drawing an immediate flurry of fact checks from publications all across the country. The New York Times pointed out that the meaning of the phrase was vague and that Trump could have meant any one of several things by the statement. Finally, they concluded that since Trump stubbornly insisted on uh, existing in our plane of reality, the statement that the evening was good in any way could not possibly be true. Therefore, it was deemed false. Is Trump wishing us a good evening or does he mean that it's a good evening whether we want it or not? Or is he saying he feels good this evening or that it is an evening to be good on? No matter what meaning Trump intended, it's clear that in no sense can anything in America be called good while he exists. End quote. Well, CNN, meanwhile, fact checked the concept of good altogether. Hold it right there, one anchor said, pausing the broadcast to interject his comment. What is this hateful, absolute, objective idea of good that Trump's talking about here? Correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but it seems to me that Trump is advocating for a national religion and the execution of all Muslims with this statement. This is a very grave day in America, he added solemnly. 
We rate this statement pants on fire. Huh. Well, Fox News rated the statement as a mixture of truth and falsehood, since with Trump in the White House, it's actually a great evening. Anyway, a little tongue in cheek uh, following a week of very contentious back and forth with a lot of um, high stakes. Um, but nonetheless, nothing resolved. I hope now in the in the midst of all of this and we have our own political perspectives, our point of view on what we think should happen. Uh, what's um, what costs are being borne by those who work for the federal government, those who would like to enter the country illegally and whether or not a barrier is a good way to funnel those individuals into a point at which they can be accounted for. And that's what a, a wall does. It isn't just a barrier. It's also a funnel. Um, but we as believers also have the opportunity and I would say the privilege of praying for uh, those who are in position of leadership, whether that's Donald Trump and you might just wince at the the, the thought of his name. Or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, and you may be completely upset that the two of them are uh, in Washington. But regardless of who, what personalities fill those uh, vacancies at this point, we need to be praying for these men and women of influence, not just for the sake of resolving this political issue, but that you and I as followers of Christ might be free to do what is our primary job. Now, my primary job isn't to sit here behind the microphone and talk to you about what's going on in Washington and Salem and elsewhere. My primary job is to be an ambassador for Christ and to do that with uh, without being hindered. Uh, we're told in scripture, we need to, to pray that we can um, live in a way that uh, we're free uh, to exercise our primary responsibility. So I hope you're praying for uh, this. We might pray for a specific outcome, but always submitting our perspective and our point of view to God's wisdom and mercy, because he has a plan at work that far exceeds our ability to understand or comprehend. Um, And so we can pray for a particular outcome. We have a perspective. We have what we think is informed thinking on a subject, but always submitting that, Lord, nevertheless, what I think, what I think I know, uh, we submit this and ask that your will be done. So I hope we're taking full advantage of not only our obligation, but the privilege of influencing the course of a nation through prayer. So let's do that along the way. Again, tomorrow we'll lighten up. We'll also spend some time talking with James about, uh, well, his 15 years serving as producer of the Georgine Rice Show. want to thank he and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.